Welcome to the History of Networking, where we drag all of the skeletons out of the wiring closet and ponder the ghosts of protocols past. Good, how are you? That's right. Awesome. So which part of D.C.? We live um, a couple of miles north of the White House, just off 16th Street near the zoo. Neighborhood is called Mount Pleasant. Yeah, for those who don't know D.C., the way the streets are laid out is they're lettered and then they're numbered. So there's two First Street, two Second Streets, two A's and two B's. And you have to know whether you're going to the intersection Northwest or Northeast. Um, I know this because I used to work in DC quite a bit and I told the cab driver the wrong corner on multiple occasions. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, um, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. So, yeah. So, Laura, let's begin from the very beginning. I think you said the Early 1980s is some, somewhere around that range, 83, 84 with Farnet. Is that where we should begin? Yes, but Farnet didn't exist yet then. So I got involved in early 1983. I got a job at a computer company in Massachusetts called Bolt, Veronica, Newman. And Bolt, Veronica, Newman were three MIT professors that were um, acoustic engineers, actually, I'm not sure all of them were, but at least one of them was, and they were using computers to analyze audio. That's how they got into the computer game. And by the time I arrived there in uh, the early 1980s, it was getting close to a $100 million company. So it was very big um, by some standards, and it was um, doing a lot of work in computer networks and it was still doing some work in audio and it was doing natural language processing and all kinds of things. In terms of networking, it was um, a place where some of the very earliest work on packet switching had been done. And so they were uh, deeply involved in the development of the ARPANET, which was the first network that used um, the internet protocol. Because of this, they had a lot of different projects uh, for the Defense Department. They were working on packet radio networks and satellite networks and processors to handle packet switching. And they bid on and won a contract in the early 80s to become the Network Information Center for a new project at the National Science Foundation called CSNet, the Computer Science Network. And that's the project that I went to work on. And CSNet was um, set up uh, as a result of proposal to the Science Foundation by some computer science professors who were frustrated that their universities and colleges could not participate in the ARPANET because they weren't doing a significant amount of defense work. So the MITs and the Berkeleys, the places that had um, access to the ARPANET, it was felt were at an advantage because the the scientists who were working had a, and had access to those networks could share information more readily and 
could um, share software and work on each other's computers and do all the things that um, a packet switch network would permit and wasn't possible um, in the in the non-ARPANET environment. Um, and the commercial packet switching networks at the time were very expensive and didn't really support all the functionality. So these professors convinced the National Science Foundation and ultimately the National Science Board that they should fund this new project. Uh, and it was a $5 million project. So at, at first I worked on, on CSNet and what happened in the intervening, say, three to five years was that, so the Science Foundation decided that they were also gonna fund these supercomputer centers and which they did. Uh, all over the country in different regions of the country and that they had their CSNet project, but they also needed to connect these supercomputer centers. And that was going to mean higher speed connections and direct connections. And it was also going to mean effectively a national backbone because these supercomputer centers, about five of them were distributed all across the country from San Diego to Princeton. So networking was evolving very rapidly and, and CSNet was also growing very rapidly, even though a lot of the connections to CSNet were actually dial-up connections and all they gave to the members was the ability to exchange mail with the ARPANET, basically. Another development that was happening at the same time is that TCPIP... And it's hard to sort of remember this or understand it now, but the TCPIP was only one among many network schemes that were out there. There was um, a standards-based initiative going on um, through OSI, an international standards body to create international standards for all of this. So there was a standard for addressing and so forth and so on. And that was a big effort. And then all the vendors had proprietary standards and they were of course pushing for their standard and their hardware to be the, the standard of choice. Uh, so it was a very competitive environment and it wasn't at all clear that TCPIP was going to become the default or networking standard of choice in the way that it is today. CSNet was operating as a TCPIP-based network, and the National Science Foundation network ultimately became, in part because of Steve Wolf and Dennis Jennings, who were the program directors at the National Science Foundation who set up these NSF networks, CSNet, I mean, TCPIP eventually became a, a front runner in all of this. Um, it was built into Berkeley Unix. It was being ported to other operating systems. It was the standard of choice for universities. And CSNet had been such a success in computer science departments that other university departments wanted sort of in on the, the game. So, so would you say that the reason TCPIP was successful was because it was in or was being was so attractive was because it was in Berkeley Unix or would you say there was some other? 
I think it was because it was vendor neutral. I mean, certainly the fact that it was built into Unix was very helpful in the research environment. I'm not sure how helpful it was at that time in the commercial environment, but the fact that it was vendor neutral and you know, you didn't have to commit yourself to debt computers and whatever that meant in terms of performance and so forth um, was a big reason that it was successful. And I, I think that it was the fact that it was open source was also very important. Um, it could develop very rapidly because the standards were published they were developed, uh, you know, by the IETF process, which was a very collaborative. That they used to say, um, "rough con- consensus and working code." That's that was what they were aiming for. Um, they may still say that, for all I know. People who were writing code were very engaged in that process, uh, and I suspect they are today. Um, and there was a lot of. Um, uh, pride in being able to develop something that worked and that was accepted by the community. And it it was a very effective process. So I think TCPIP had a lot of things going for it. And so the fact that CSNet and then ultimately, and I... What happened was that the National Science Foundation backbone, the NSFNet backbone, which had, I think that they had something much bigger in mind when they connected the supercomputer centers. I think there was a vision that this was going to become a, um, at least for academic and research uh, organizations, this was going to become a ubiquitous network that would serve the entire community. So they were making some very important decisions. And we recently had a, um, a reunion, a 35th anniversary reunion online for the NSFNet. And we talked about this. Dennis Jennings spoke and talked about the vision, even as early as 1985, of where this would go. So, so CSNet kept growing in its sort of organic way. But at the same time, there was tremendous interest in connecting to the NSFNet backbone because it was a very high-speed network that ran TCP IP that was national. And so regional networks were springing up, usually operated by a university or a consortium of universities. And so this gets us to say 1987 from my point of view what's happening is a new england network is developing i'm still at both veronica and newman and which is called bbn and still working on csnet but then the new england universities have decided they want to get together and operate a network that can connect to the nsfnet backbone so bbn bids on that project also. And we win that project. I become the the director of that project. And MIT is the, we have a contract with MIT. They're the, the manager of the network. They've convened all these New England universities. And they, along with Harvard and BU, are sort of the managing uh, partners in the network. And so we start to set up uh, the New England network. And this is a, 
this is a full-on TCP IP network with Cisco routers and dedicated circuits and and all of that and a 24-hour network operations center. Uh, and we're really in business here. <laughs> and this is going on all over the country. So I'll, I'll stop here and say questions or any direction you want me to go in. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that the network started regionally first because that's kind of an important part that was kind of bottom up, even though you know, we're talking about an overall plan. It was kind of starting from the bottom up regionally with TCPIP. And then that was kind of being interconnected. People were seeing there was a need for this kind of stuff from the regional perspective first. And I think that's the story a lot with the internet. And I think it's just interesting that it comes out that way. Um, this was often not top down. Yeah, there there was no sort of grand plan. And and I made this point in another talk that I gave recently that you might think that something this complex and um, ultimately this high impact would have had to come from a, um, a central agency, you know, the great God in the sky or something. And in fact, a lot of it was I think this is going to work. Let's try it out. And there was also a, a word of mouth effect on campuses because the computer science department would have the connection and somebody in another department that worked with computer science would hear about it. And then they would want a connection too, because their people over at the other university were working on the same project or had a similar kind of grant or had a data set that they wanted to use. So it kind of grew on campus in an organic way too. And then that demand got pushed up and there was a certain amount of competition between departments and a certain then academic computing would be kind of fighting with administrative computing, but there was so much pressure um, ultimately because Everybody wanted to use TCPIP, and everybody wanted the fastest connection possible. That it really pushed people in the direction of cooperating at the campus level. So there are regional networks. There are some of them actually are like statewide networks. Some of them are built on top of existing academic service uh, consortia. Um, there's one in New York State that kind of started up new just to do this project. And pretty soon they're all over the country and they're all running TCPIP and they're all using commercial routers to do it. And the people that are invested in them and, you know, organizing them are quite invested in them. And so you have this very large and very um, vibrant bottom-up growth of the network. And of course, all of them ultimately want to connect to this NSF backbone. And NSF has put out a solicitation for a backbone manager and a backbone provider. And They've really incentivized commercial companies to get in the game. So MCI becomes, you ever heard of MCI? <laughs> yeah. They got incentivized to come in because it was a prestige kind of project, the, the NSF net backbone. 
So that's all growing and it, it, it's all very enthusiastic, but I think there's only one program manager at NSF. And I remember we were at a conference, I think somewhere in the Midwest and um, he and I were standing on one of those bridges. Like, so Steve Wolf and I are standing on this bridge and he said, Laura, we need to bring all these regional networks together. <laughs> there needs to be an umbrella. Um, at least that's how I remember it. And so um, Farnet was born and Farnet was the Federation of American Research Networks. So all of us got together and started having meetings and ultimately decided that we would incorporate and um have bylaws and a board of directors and all those good things, which we did. And, um, and so we became the sort of um, advocate and not sponsor, but, but we, we were the, the group that represented the interests of the regional networks insofar as their interests were not competing, um, which in some cases they were eventually. And it was just a really interesting time because, you know, everything was changing because it, the whole idea of the internet was really snowballing and, you know, you had PCs with internet software on them and you had commercial email and people were starting to see what you could do with that. So AOL, AOL and chat rooms. You had AOL. So it was all moving really fast. And CSNet was by the time the regional networks were really up and running and well-developed, CSNet was on in decline because there were better options out there. Um, and the work was really focused on building the regional networks. So now we're up to 1990-ish. So that's why I think it's interesting, though, that, that, that this legal organization started in order to draw these networks together before the official work of drawing them, like the technical work of drawing the networks together came to be. Is that correct? The, the networks all ran on the assumption that we were going to have basically the same rules and we were all going to use internet addresses and we were all going to connect to the, you know, backbone routers and use the address schemes that were required to, you know, use those routers and, make the conversions to whatever the next development was. Um, so, you know, it was clear that we were going to work together. What wasn't clear was how all this was going to evolve as the, the thing matured. And, um, you know, were we just going to go on forever in this vein of the backbone and the regional networks? NSF wasn't going to support a backbone network forever. And I don't know at what point that was clear to NSF. I mean, I, I don't know that they had had a real plan, you know, about all of this. I mean, looking back, could you have predicted that the networks were going to get faster. The routers were going to get faster. The hardware was going to go through these <clears throat> amazing transformations so that 
<clears throat> you could do all kinds of things with video that you couldn't have really imagined in the 80s. And that then you're going to have a browser. You're going to have the World Wide Web. I mean, this was all pretty phenomenal to think that it all happened in the span of eight or 10 years, which is what happened. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast today that was talking about the speed at which processors increased and networks as well. And they were saying, imagine if cars doubled in speed every year. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what's happening. Or that's what has happened over this time period. And so it's unimaginable to us, um, you know, exactly what that result would be in, in any other field. But is that the right comparison? Like, would you compare that to like the 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 power of the engine is what you really need to compare it to, right? Like, the horsepower of the engine probably is doubling, or the efficiency did do that when it first started, right? Maybe yes, that that could be true. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine like what it would be like from here. Well, yeah, and in those days, it was being able to support. I mean, I have a really clear memory of getting a Mac computer on my desk in B- at BBN in about 1984. And it was a little tiny box with a little tiny black and white window, like this big. And the amazing thing was that with your mouse, you could make little pictures right on the screen. You didn't have, because I was used to working at a terminal that was, connected to a patch panel that was connected to a VAX down in the machine room. And you could type command line stuff and get your computer to do things, but you couldn't like manipulate something and have something appear right on your screen. It wasn't, I mean, that was amazing. I think it had 128 K of memory, you know, and, but to go from that to the World Wide web in less than 10 years, I mean, in 1994, you had Netscape, you had a commercial browser. How is that even possible (laughs) is what it feels like, you know, now. And, um, And so I think the hardware, the change, the way hardware changed and evolved and got so much faster and then permitted all of the 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 voice the video the interactivity the graphics yeah you know it it's kind of mind-boggling and it's like what happened after the the iphone was introduced in, in 2007 which you know now it's like oh yeah iphone or whatever you have galaxy samsung old hat it's hard to <laughs> to um imagine before the iPhone that we were going to have this thing that would do all the things that it does and is more powerful than a supercomputer and so forth and so on. Okay, so we were in the 90s. Sorry, we kind of derailed there, derailed your train of thought there. <laughs> we were in the 90s, so we're, we're, let's start at the 90s then and continue. Farnet had probably um, 25 members from state networks, regional networks, um, California is so big, it had multiple networks, and all of them were operating as feeder networks to the national backbone. And some of them were also providing other services to the regions that they worked in. Um, Many of them 
connected libraries and some of them ultimately connected public libraries that connected government agencies. And then some of them were also adding commercial customers. And there was pressure because um, at least on paper, the NSFNet was, you know, for research and education, that um, policy was very, I would say, loosely observed and also somewhat loosely enforced so that as long as there were no blatant commercial uses, big advertising campaigns, um, commercial organizations were, were permitted to use it. But this meant there was a lot of pressure on the regional networks to come up with price structures and um, use policies and legal agreements and all this stuff. I mean, they were becoming quasi-commercial. That evolution, again, was being pushed fairly quickly by the um, demand for network services. Um, Really, the, the lack of other attractive options. There were some small regional ISPs, but most of the big companies had not yet figured out how to provide a commercial internet service. So it was small ISPs and the regional network. As Farnet director, which I I left BBN in 1991, and um, I became the director of Farnet. I was the first director. uh, And I think I had a halftime staff person. And um, we had an office in a in a commercial office building on Route 128 in Boston. And we we chose that building because it had line of sight to a, I think it was a 10 megabit, um, 10 megabit connection to something at MIT. Anyway, that was Farnet. And um, we spent a lot of time thinking about both how to improve network services, but how were these networks going to evolve in the context of what was going on in the broader environment and with NSF. And and we also spent a lot of time sort of explaining what the internet was to people who had gotten wind of the internet. And um, so they, they would write or they would come to the office or we would you know, go down to Washington and talk to people, kind of explain how all of this worked, which was very kind of mysterious to people, because if you weren't inside the internet environment, and you didn't know what the IETF was, that would be, I mean, it was kind of hard to imagine. So that's, that's what we did. I stayed for three years. uh, And during that time, I think we only added members and to Farnet. We we did add some smaller commercial ISPs, and then in 1994, Clinton and Gore were elected, and Gore was very much about the the information superhighway. That was going to be one of his signature efforts. And NSF, meanwhile, is uh, not wanting to be in the commercial networking game and also not wanting to support the backbone network forever because there was 
pressure, constant pressure to increase the speed of the backbone, which had started at 56 and then 56 kilobits per second, and then went to T1 and ultimately was at T3, 45 megabits a second. Clinigore elected. The browser is out there. The hardware is getting faster and better. Um, and, and now the game kind of changes because all of these conditions make it really bright for um, the commercial internet to take hold. And I got recruited um, to go to Washington. Wait a minute. They were elected. Was it 90? No, they were elected in 92. They were pushing for the development of a, a fast, ubiquitous network. In 94, I went to work in Washington. That was the end of my, my involvement with Farnet. Although Farnet some of the network organizations are still um, around and still primarily because they served a statewide audience um, and they could do things like procure um, circuits and routers more cost effectively than an individual organization. They're still around and still providing um, services, probably not on a commercial basis. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't kept up with that. Um, but anyway, I, I went to work on a new grant program that was going to fund innovative applications of the internet in the public sector. So we had a grant program with thousands of applications and we had $60 million um, over the uh, the first two years. I, I left after two years. I, I really wasn't cut out for government work. I didn't understand the bureaucracy. And I had come from, you know, I had come from an environment that was very innovative and very fast paced and, you know, rough consensus and working code and let's get on with it. And um, I just wasn't prepared for the pace of government work. I did go back, actually, when when Obama was elected, because there was another grant program, um, bigger grant program. And I, I was asked to come back um, because they they had to staff up really quickly. It was part of the Recovery Act. But that was Farnet. And uh, and I think that role, you know, that we played of bringing together the networks and, and providing a, a single and fairly consistent voice to NSF. That was an important role that we had at the time and making it possible for all of the different network uh, organizers and managers um, to come together and share what was going on in their, in their particular universes because they were all uh, a little different. I think that was a very important feature of it as well. Were there other networks you were involved with after that? I had the impression there were other things that you worked on. Since after that, I was mostly involved in the application side of things, like making, I worked on, uh, well, it's, so I worked on computer centers, helping people get connected to the network who might have been on the wrong side of the digital divide, were on the wrong side of the digital divide. I 
worked with um, Native American tribes uh, as a consultant on a project with the University of Michigan. Um, so I, I did consulting work for about four years. Again, it was really interesting because it was, you know, when things were still evolving and it was in the run-up to the, the uh, internet sort of debacle of 2000 when, you know, everybody thought they were going to make a lot of money uh, once the internet sort of took hold in the mid-90s and, and there was a gold rush and ultimately there was the kind of crash that follows that. And I was working mostly with nonprofits at that point, but I was living in Silicon Valley, so... I did see a lot of kind of stupid money walking around, um, but it was a very interesting time to be there, and it was a good time for. That that seems to be true of Silicon Valley. There tends to be a lot of stupid money running around Silicon Valley a lot of times, and you're kind of like. Yeah, I guess when you have that much money, some of it is bound to be stupid. But yeah, I remember having that impression very strongly. And then I went to work on another. This was a. a government-sponsored project, but I was working for a nonprofit in Boston as directing programs in, I can't remember what we called it, but it was like, what do you do with the internet and the public sector again? So that was the kind of, it was more on the application end of things. How do you help people use the internet? How do you make it more accessible to people who are on the wrong side of the digital divide? How do you um, create applications that people who are less literate or um, have disabilities can can use? And my last job before I retired um, was at the Commerce Department again, and it was working, uh, as I said, on a Recovery Act program. And this was... It was about $4 billion, and... uh, it was 90% of it was going to be used to build out um, internet service, I mean, physical lines and stuff in areas that didn't have it, broadband. Um, And 10% of it was going to be spent on helping public computer centers and and programs that uh, we called it broadband adoption, uh, programs to help people acquire skills or hardware or internet service, sort of the kinds of things that you're seeing now because the digital divide has become so much more evident um, as a result of the pandemic uh, that, you know, all of a sudden you can see that one smartphone for a family of six is not going to be enough to meet their needs for um, internet service. Uh, if you're talking about healthcare and education and um, looking for a job and so forth, um, the program at Commerce was to help public access points like like libraries uh, staff up and build out you know computer centers so that people could come in, look for jobs um, and that kind of thing uh, in the middle of the crash, the, the 2008 economic crash. So I think that, I mean, that kind of covers the history. Is there any other current work you're doing? I guess you're retired, so probably not. I'm, um, I'm the chair of the board of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. So this is a national nonprofit that I helped start up when I retired. Um, and 
the idea here was that you had all these programs all over the country that now they had this capacity, some of which they had developed with this government funding. You know, they were small local organizations and they might be the only one in their community that did this kind of work of training and helping people get refurbished computers and so forth. So, and there are were many interests that they had that were common. And so what about creating a national organization for them? So do you see a theme here that's, yeah, we started this organization, uh, of course, not knowing that there would be a pandemic, but it, it really took root. And there are a lot of amazing people and organizations all over the country that are doing everything from, you know, mesh networks and housing projects to stringing their own fiber, uh, helping people you know, just pay for network connections, wireless hotspot, all of that's on the access side. And then there, there are training programs and um, refurbishing hard, programs that refurbish hardware. In fact, they've got their own little organization now, the refurbishers. So, um, you know, a lot of people who are close to the ground who see that the needs are not going to be met um, unless local people step up to meet them. So again, it's kind of a, a bottom-up effort in a lot of ways. Um, we thought and still think that it was really important to have a voice in Washington because there's so much about federal policy that that affects and, and can determine what happens down at the ground level. But if you don't have people at the ground level doing the work who understand the people in the community, um, then you're not going to be effective. So we, we NDIA exist really to help create uh, a voice um, and a platform platform for those people and organizations. I guess the one thing that would be, might be interesting is what would be you consider the biggest hurdle technical or whatever from the, the you hit in creating Farnet? I mean, I think Farnet had to exist. And if, you know, if I hadn't taken the job, someone else would have. But I, I think all of us who were working on regional projects at the time realized that there were so many issues uh, at the national level that were going to have an impact on us that we needed to have a way to speak to those issues. And so that's where we really started out. And then, as I said, we ended up spending a lot of time explaining what the internet was to people who heard about it, but they, they didn't really know. In fact, when I got to Washington, that was one of the things I did a lot of. I would go to a meeting and explain to people here's what it is and here's what it does. And I had a little, I had a book that we had published of stories um, from all around the internet, um, one from each state in the District of Columbia about how people were using the internet in, in their uh, states. And looking back on it now, I mean, it's really amusing because it would be something like my mother got sick and I could go down to Louisiana to be with her because I had my computer and I could dial into my whatever. But, you know, that really helped 
bring it home to people. So is that book still available? Can you get it in digital format? It'd be really cool to have a copy of that. I know we really should digitize it because as I said, it, you know, I just carried it around with me. And I, if I knew you were from Missouri, I opened it right up to Missouri and I could show you that somebody there was, you know, looking up cattle prices somewhere. That would be really cool. I'm sure that Google or somebody would love to pick up that work and have it digitized as part of their Google book or Google Scholar section. Awesome. Well, thank you, Laura, for joining. So what is the URL for the foundation that you're working with? It's digitalinclusion.org. Digitalinclusion.org. Good. So we'll send people there if they want to find out more about that work. Um, and Donald, people can get you at me, not you sharp on Twitter. Is that Twitter? Yeah. All right. That's cool. And I'm Russ White. You can find me on LinkedIn and rule11.tech and here at the History of Networking. Thanks so much for Laura coming on and giving us all this great history. It's awesome to collect all this and to preserve it for future folks to listen to. Subscribe to the History of Networking on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.